0: This is the third Sunday of Epiphany, and uh, the readings shift to some degree from the first two Sundays, which, which were more about the person of Christ, and now we're moving into the work of Christ. I want to preach on all three readings. One is about the illuminative processes of God at work in the lives of people and understanding this in terms of the history of salvation in the book of the prophet Isaiah and how we as the Christian church <clears throat> have understood this text to be predictive of Jesus and seeing that in him he is the bringer of this of this light and in 1 Corinthians we have a a uh, discussion by Paul in his letter to people who are concerned and affected by petty disputes so this is the origin of parish life. Okay, so we'll have a little something to say about what that means. And then in Matthew's gospel, we have Jesus now beginning his public ministry and calling the disciples and urging those who follow him to repent. And so I want to say some things about that. And also we see reproduced a peace Uh, of Isaiah 9, and maybe then I'll say a word about this, and Ernest can help me when I get the geography and archaeology wrong, but to talk about Jesus making a move from Nazareth to Capernaum. So that's just an, an interesting footnote about all this. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, we have today Isaiah speaking about the light of God's grace and forgiveness. And remember, Christian interpreters and even Jewish interpreters understood uh, as they look back that Isaiah was talking about an important thing. The tendency to narrow who's in and who's out. The tendency to say that the definitive revelation of God has been made to the people of the covenant, the Jews. And they're the ones who are going to be the recipient of the benefits. And even as early as Isaiah, we began to see uh, the prophets say things like, God's saving embrace is for everyone, and today it's about the uh, Gentiles. The light is being brought to the Gentiles. And so they are going to see now, Gentile of the nations. I think another in Greek, the word uh, Gentile can mean the nations, or it relates to, to what that means, that This message now um, that came to uh, Jesus is a message for everyone. It's a message for the world. And since epiphany is the season when we think about how to make that universal significance manifest, then this is extremely important. Every Easter I talk about four, not not, uh, affirmations, four aspects to the Easter liturgy which we see every year uh, replicated in, in the Holy Week liturgies, particularly at the Great Vigil of Easter. And the first one is the presence of the light of Christ, symbolized by the Paschal candle that remains in the sanctuary for the great 50 days. And the light of Christ is symbolic uh, in two ways. The first is that God's illuminative uh, presence is seen externally, so some have, sim- have uh, used the Paschal candle, for example, uh, as a symbol of the, the uh, fi- fire in the wilderness leading the people of Israel. So it leads us corporately into a deeper and fuller understanding of our vocation. But it's also an internal light, and we understand that in the church as part of how we understand baptism. There's a Greek word that's used for baptism in the early church, photismus which means enlightenment. So when you are baptized, you receive the light of Christ through the Spirit of God. And so Christians look back at this reading from Isaiah and said, now we're going to see this light presence in the work of Jesus. So it sets us up for this, uh, this idea and this concept. But before I talk about that, I want to say a word about First Corinthians, or maybe more than one word about Corinthians. Paul, as we're still in chapter 1, and Paul is talking about uh, having received a message from Chloe's people. She had people. <laughs> right? Uh, this is also helpful to us because we begin to see, uh, in the New Testament, wit- witness the leadership of women in the Christian communities that uh, Paul founded. Also, remember, when you read any of Paul's letters, it's like listening to one end of a telephone conversation because you don't, you don't know what was said on the other end. But Chloe's people uh, let him know that somehow there was division in the Corinthian church. As my grandmother would say, dear, there's tension. Uh, The word that Paul uses is eris, and it suggests an attitudinal division and interpersonal bickering (laughs) rather than doctrinal or theological uh, splits. It is often associated with jealousy and petty strife, And it's difficult to know what the nature of these internal differences were, but it seems to be various kinds of personal loyalty. So people were taking sides with people in leadership within the Corinthian community. Now, here's the interesting thing. There are four groups that are mentioned by Paul for censure. One is um, that uh, people who say, uh, I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, and I belong to Christ. So what's wrong with that? But they all are um, universally condemned. I read a commentary about this to prepare the sermon this week, and it said, The gist of Paul's remarks suggests that all four groups are being reprimanded for false loyalties or identifying their loyalties wrongly. Those claiming to belong to Christ are perhaps being censured because they are as divisive and exclusive in their claims as the rest, in which case they would be partly party to dismembering the body of Christ. Even the right title or the right cliché is meaningless if it becomes the occasion for arrogant and exclusive claims." Now, you and I can uh, extrapolate that into, you know, the uh, early 21st century and understand that uh, there are people who are very rigid about what it is that Christianity claims, and somehow you have to draw the line. This does not actually relate to this in absolute terms. This little book is a wonderful book. It's about 20, 25 or 6 years old, Theology and Anglicanism, and the best one is the first article by Henry Chadwick who forgot more about the early Christian church than most people learn. And he's talking in here about Anglicanism and about its views towards the Bible. And then making some comments about what uh, what he, we, we need to keep in mind. Reformed uh, Christianity says that we believe in the Bible alone, scripture alone, sola scriptura. So the tradition with a capital T is something that now is subordinated to that or perhaps not not really an issue at all. And certainly our human reason and experience uh, is a little shaky also. So he says here, The principle scripture alone cannot be read out of scripture alone, an objection which is more than a debating point. This principle may easily be taken to mean or rather some ingenuity has to be deployed to show that it does not mean that nothing is essential to salvation that is not perfectly self-evident to any and every casual reader of the Bible. Appeal to Scripture alone presupposes that the meaning of Scripture is so clear on all material points that everyone will be in agreement. In fact, nothing resembling agreement appears. The Reformation, for example, and this is the piece I love, the Reformation, for example, emerged as a large group of vociferous groups and sects. Vociferous. <laughs> it's like Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> right? Vociferous groups and sects. Splitting. So the reason I'm mentioning this is that I could have keep, kept reading and it w- would have just not completely veered off. But the fact is, is that when we begin to think about what causes splitting and division, how serious a question is it? And, you know, over the last 25 or 30 years in the Episcopal Church, uh, we have experienced a great deal of tension. You know, there's some hot-button issues. Some of them are are becoming, and this is going to sound like I'm speaking against my point, Uh, some of them uh, are calming down a little bit because the real irascible individuals have all gone. You know? I was having a conversation with a Roman Catholic priest about four years ago who I know quite well, and he was telling me about how he felt a little uneasy about the fact that all these uh, Anglican clergy, not all these, but a certain number of Anglican clergy who were married were able to now come into the Roman Catholic Church and exercise their priesthood in, in something called the Anglican Ordinariate, And I said, and you can have them. <laughs> you can have them. But I believe firmly that uh, many Anglican Episcopalians have for a long time understood that perhaps uh, the cardinal sin is splitting and not staying together, that we should labor for the unity, and that that is the best way uh, to do that, and to begin always with what it is that we agree upon, and then move to the hard bits. It might surprise you to know that uh, the uh, Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion and the Roman Catholic Church have over the years been meeting in something called the Anglican-Roman Catholic Dialogue. And they have come to agreement on just about everything, even Mary, with the exception of the (laughs) pill, which is the tough one, right? So you need to start with the things that uh, you can come to common agreement about, and so for the big issues... The big issues that are, in fact, uh, theological and doctrinal are the ones that uh, we need to do that with, I think, uh, and labor to do it. But Paul, because of the language that he's using here, is also speaking about something that is common to Christian churches from the jump. And that is um, bogging down in uh, attitudinal or interpersonal conflicts. All I want to make sure is that things are done right here. That's why I'm saying this. There's a man who lives over in Felton or Ben Lomond or somewhere like that who is a church consultant. He's famous. He worked for many years for the Alban Institute. And the Alban Institute is in Washington, D.C. It was founded by an Episcopal priest named Lauren Mead. And it's sort of a church think tank. And they have consultants and facilitators and people who uh, can also be hired to come and, and work with churches and, and uh, religious institutions and groups. And uh, this man is, is, is very well known in this area. His name is Speed Lees, S P E E D L E A S. That's his real name, Speed Lees. So I took a class from Speed Lee's about six or seven years ago now, and uh, he was talking about conflict, conflict in churches. And he said, you know, I spend a certain amount of time in my work, working with churches of all different denominations, not just Episcopalians, but of all different denominations, who have long-standing, deep-seated conflicts that are systemic and uh, very, very difficult to dismantle. And we need to labor to do that. But he said, you know what? I spend way too much of my time working with congregations who are at war with one another over whether or not the parish hall should be blue. Paul is talking about maybe the need to understand what's important and what's not important. You, I think one of the things you need to ask yourself is if, it, if it's, we paint it blue, will it add one more person to the parish rolls, bring, bring somebody to God, or see the, the aspects of the Episcopal Church that are compelling like most of us do? Or maybe we should paint it green. Or maybe, you know, whatever the case may be. Should we can the altar guild member who has folded the corporal improperly? (laughs) Listen, I've been a priest for 38 years, and this stuff is what you see over and over and over and over. You know? So it's very interesting when Edwin Friedman says, you know what, Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So how do we begin to move in a godly fashion away from that merry-go-round of of doing this? And when do we make the decision to say it is useless to work with unmotivated people? So Paul is getting uh, around to this, not just about the big issues, But he's talking about how we need to uh, come together as one. Let me add, in the big issues in the church, there's a lot of real division and conflict. But uh, the issue about those divisions is that they cut through. Uh, They they don't have any group specifically. People on the right who are very conservative uh, become stubborn and recalcitrant. And the same is true on the left. The same is true. So we actually become polarized to a degree that we can't move forward. So maybe Jesus comes in handy right now in Matthew's Gospel. First of all, we have uh, Matthew speaking a, a part of the uh, reading we had in Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He reads that the people who have sat in darkness see a great, have seen a great light. It's talking about how people get stuck and how they can't see out of it. And so they're living in some form of um, emotional, spiritual, and mental darkness. And the early Christians believed that in Jesus and in his teaching, in his earthly ministry, they began to see a way forward because they understood that what was present in him was something they called the reign of God or the kingdom of God, however you wish to Describe that sort of thing, that that was what was going to come, and they believed that the world was going to be transformed. But first, before that, he said, "You need, like his John the Baptist, who baptized him, you need to repent. You need to turn around and look at your life in a new way." And I actually think, after what I just said about parish life, I think the hardest for all of us is uh, repenting of the quotidian things that we face on a daily basis and not wanting to let them go. We become addicted to them. I just want to see that things are done right. It's not the great and grand issues about saying, I'm not going to, I will stop being a sinner. Although that's important. We should. Right? But repentance... In the original, metendoiete means to turn around and look at your life in a new way and figure out the ways and the means to not to, to change your mental and emotional outlook but also to resolve to do that, to put it in your hands in some way and see how you make a start. So then when you move in the, a direction to do that, the collecti- the collective of all the Christian people who are resolved that they need to repent will now begin to shift things because they will understand their relationship with one another in a new way. And so they'll begin to recover some sense of a common vocation. And I think what, this is what Jesus is getting at when he speaks uh, about that uh, with the inauguration of his public ministry. So this week, give thanks for the presence of the light of Christ. Give thanks for uh, being part of the process. You know, God needs each one of us to fulfill his plan for the cosmos. And this now will be disclosed by Jesus as he moves forward. Jesus believed this about the kingdom, that it was present right now in him here and continues to be. But it is also a future reality. So that means that each generation of Christian people are bringers of the values of the kingdom of God to the world in every age. And so that's our job. Not whether or not the parish hall is blue. (laughs) Amen. 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 Amen.